We're going to get right into the message this morning. I hope you brought a Bible with you. If you did, open to the book of James, but don't stay there very long. We'll be in James chapter 1. Then I want you to go to the Gospels, starting with the Gospel of Luke. So find both of those books, if you would. Here's a reason that we're going to start in the Gospels today. We're in a study of the book of James, but we're going to get there from the Gospels. I was spending some time with a fellow that's very familiar to most everybody in this room, but typically this is the wrong time of year for us to look at any scripture that contains his name. This week I broke all those rules and I was spending a lot of time with him. His name is Joseph. He was the father, the earthly father of Jesus. You understand why I say typically there's a time of year where we look at him. That, of course, would be Christmas. But I was pretty intrigued by him this past week, spent a lot of time with him. Let me show you some of the things that I was reminded of. These are things that you know as well, starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Now, here's the first thing I was reminded of. Joseph, at heart, was a small-town boy. He really was. He lived in Nazareth. That was his adult home. He chose to live there. He chose to make that his home and to build his occupation in that place. It is a small town, especially in those days. Today, the city of Nazareth is pretty good-sized. In those days, though, the days of the Bible... You couldn't have even called it a city. At best, it was a village and not a well-thought-of one. But Joseph said, this is where I want to raise my family. This is where I want to build my home and build my livelihood. Now, it makes perfect sense when you realize where he was from. Small towns were in his nature. They were part of his roots. He was from the, the little village of Bethlehem. Even today, it's still just a little tiny village. Nazareth is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is six miles outside of Jerusalem. Not even a suburb. It almost appears to be an afterthought. In these days, the days of the Bible, it would have appeared exactly the same way as an afterthought. But for some reason, in the way he was raised, Joseph said, that's the way I want to raise my family. That's where I want to live. More than likely, he had discovered the wonderful joys of living in a small town the same way we have. He knows everybody that he lives around. He knows everybody that comes into his shop. He knew everybody that he bumped into at the grocery store. He knew the people that he went to church with. He knew the people that he was doing life with. A great, wonderful blessing of living in a small town. Amen? Amen. Joseph understood that. Let me show you something else about him. Pretty familiar thing as well. This is in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Actually, what we discover here are three things, three familiar things about him. By trade, Joseph was a carpenter. A lot of people would tell you, and I, I tend to agree with them, that he was a carpenter not just by trade, but by giftedness. People that are master craftsmen in any trade have special gifts that have been given to them by God. Joseph would have fit in that exact same category. He was a carpenter by trade, by skill, and by giftedness. He was married to a lady named Mary. We know that from our study of the Bible. And he also had some other children. Jesus was not an only child. 
that is oftentimes lost on people because he's the only one we think of as Joseph and Mary's son. But the Bible would tell us in a couple different places, including this in Matthew chapter 13, that there were other children. You have to remember that they were half-brothers and sisters to Jesus. Jesus' father was the Holy Spirit. His earthly father was Joseph. His mother was Mary. The other children were fathered by Joseph and Mary together. So they were half-brothers and sisters of Jesus's. So there's three things that we discover about this guy. Let me show you another one. Still in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll go to the first chapter. Verse 19. Now for this one, you've got to look beneath the surface. It's there and obvious and available to everybody on the surface, but really look beneath it. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, this happens after Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant and he knows that he's not the father. So the Bible calls him, in the New International Version, a righteous man. Some other translations of the Bible would read like this. Because Joseph, her husband, was a just man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Just or righteous, either one of those words works very well. According to the original languages, the meaning of those words, just or righteous, would equate him with a person that we would see as an elder of the community, an elder of the church, a ministry leader, a Sunday school teacher. He was somebody who understood the things of God, In order for him to understand them biblically, that means that he knew the Old Testament law. He was familiar with the Torah. And the use of this word, just or righteous, says that he lived those things very well. He didn't just know them. He lived them. He was a righteous man. He was a just man. And that's part of the quandary of what he was up against here. When Mary came and told him that she was pregnant... The angel had come to him as well after that event. Joseph had a choice to make, interesting choice to make. He knew the Old Testament. According to the Old Testament, she'd had an affair. She could be stoned. She should be killed. But even before Jesus had preached anything at all, Joseph had forgiveness in his heart. Where that came from, we do not know. The Bible would teach that he had it in mind to quietly let her slip away. Few months of struggle, few months of difficulty, and then it would just be a non-issue in his life. Somewhere along the lines, he moved out of the Old Testament law into New Testament grace. We don't know where that comes from. We don't know how it happened, but it was deeply rooted within him. Pretty amazing thing. Sets the table for us to understand this about him. He was, by all accounts, the second disciple of Christ. The first was Mary. She had heard about Jesus before Joseph did. Joseph heard from the angel. He became a believer, never looked back. He believed that his son was the Messiah. He was a strong disciple. So that led me to this place this past week. Outside of the familiar things that we know about Joseph, I got into the realm of the unfamiliar with this question. I wanted to dig through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to find a quote from Joseph. I wanted to find something that he had to say. I, I looked everywhere. You know what I came up with? Nothing. Not one word. There is nothing recorded in all of the Bible 
that came out of his mouth. Nothing. He was the second disciple of Jesus. He was the earthly father. He was a righteous, just man, a prominent individual in the New Testament. And not one word, not one utterance is recorded as having come out of his mouth. Not one. That's incredibly curious to me. The closest we get is still in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. Listen to this. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. That's the closest we get. But if you're paying attention, you see that there are no quotation marks anywhere in that sentence. Nothing around, and he gave him the name Jesus, and no quotation marks around the name Jesus. There's nothing recorded as having come out of his mouth. That is mind-boggling to me. Absolutely mind-boggling. So I started looking in all kinds of different resources that are available to me. Some of them are on bookshelves that I have in my office. I was pulling out a bunch of different books, looking to see why it is that there is no record of Joseph having said anything. I got on the internet, started looking around, even went so far as to read some people's blogs. By the way, when you're studying the Bible, be very careful of people's blogs. You know what a blog is? It's an opinion. That's all it is. So I was reading other people's opinions, and I came up with nothing, nothing as to why Joseph is silent in Scripture. So that left all kinds of room for me to speculate. It just opened wide the door for me to come up with my own reasons. Here's what I came up with. Now, this is just Phil's idea, Phil's blog, if you will, his opinion. I think the reason Joseph is so silent has nothing to do with the fact that he was just a man of few words and didn't have much to say, but very obedient. No, that's his character in nature. There's a deeper reason for it. The reason is he was the very first victim of identity theft. That's what I've come up with. He was the very first victim of identity theft. Now, that's a popular term in our culture today. I'm sure you've heard it, but do you know where it came from? It first originated in the year 1964. That's the first time identity theft popped up on anybody's screen. It was tied directly to checks that were being written fraudulently. Fraudulently, there's a word for you. Checks were rising in prominence in the early 60s. People were stealing them from other people. They were filling them out and ripping them off. That's what identity theft was in 1964. It's a lot more than that today. It really is. People can get just a few pieces of information about you and literally steal your identity. By doing that, they can open credit accounts in your name. They can take out bank loans. They can get credit cards. They can attach you to behaviors that you would never approve of, let alone participate in. And they can cause a great deal of grief just by getting a couple of pieces of information, like your birthday and your social security number. From there, they're ready to go. And God help you if they figure out what your mother's maiden name was. Then you're really in trouble. So I took a little detour from Joseph, and I started looking around more at identity theft. Here's what I discovered. Local law enforcement, the FBI, the Department of Justice, and are you ready for this? Even the IRS have links on their web pages to help you sort out what happens after somebody steals your identity. They tell you how to get through it. If you took everything that those four entities said and you boiled it down into one understandable statement, this is what they would say. Good luck. If somebody gets your identity, good luck. It's going to cause you all kinds of grief and you're going to spend immense amounts of time trying to unravel it and trying to get back to a place of sanity. 
is pretty tough. They would say this, all four of those entities, do your best to prevent it so it doesn't happen. That's your best defense. It's a good offense. I learned this, had never thought about it until I was digging around this week on this whole idea of identity theft. One of the easiest ways that people can steal your identity today is by getting a hold of a pre-approved credit application that comes to you in the mail. We all get them all the time. Maybe it's laid on your table or it gets thrown on the counter. If it says that you are pre-approved, there is already information attached to that credit application that can get you in trouble. Every one of these sources said, whatever you do, don't just throw those away. You want to shred them, rip them up, destroy them, throw them in the fire, but don't just throw them away because it only takes one or two other pieces of the puzzle for a, a good thief, oxymoron, for a good thief to end up wrecking your identity life. So be careful of those things. That's the end of my public service announcement there. Let's go back to Joseph's life. Joseph was the very first victim of identity theft. And I want to show it to you. Let's pick up in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Somewhere between verses 23 and 24, he lost his identity. He was a righteous man, a just man, well-respected in the community, looked up to by all these other people that he went to church with, that he worked around, that he lived around. And now all of a sudden, he makes a decision to take home a pregnant fiance who was illegitimately pregnant. His reputation no longer mattered to him. What other people would say about him completely fell off the page. How others would perceive him was no longer even a question. His identity changes from this point forward. A whole lot of people would bring accusation against him. A whole lot of people would spread rumors about him. A whole lot of people would have disparaging things to say about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and he didn't care. He just became obedient to what God told him to do. All this other stuff, everybody else's idea, Everybody else's perspective and perception did not matter. So I thought about that more. Here's what I came to realize. Joseph was not the victim of identity theft. He was the victim, if you could call it that, of identity surrender. And every Christian will find themselves in the same place. Identity surrender. When we come to Christ, we surrender our identity. It's no longer about us the way the world would see us. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about what he asks us to do. It's about where he takes us. It is about our obedience in that relationship. That becomes our identity. This is not the only place in the Bible where this is taught. We can go to the book of James. In fact, let me encourage you to do that. Join me in James chapter 1. 
and I'll show you identity surrender. It takes, James does, the whole idea of power and prestige and prominence as the world would define it and turns it upside down. Identity surrender in Christ turns all of those things upside down. Listen to what James says. James chapter 1 verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Now, does that make any logical sense to you from the eyes of the world? Listen to it again. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Verse 10 makes it even more confusing. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That is upside-down logic. Certainly upside-down worldly logic. And it requires a certain element of identity surrender. If you're a note-taker in your Bible, in the margin of, of your Bible, you may want to write those words right next to that passage. Identity surrender. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Five times in the book of James, James would address the right perspective where wealth is concerned. Almost as if it was a problem to the people in Jerusalem that he was writing to and the Christians in the surrounding area, particularly those that had come out of Judaism. He wanted them to understand that wealth is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it is certainly not something to be worshipped. Now, this was something that he had to address during the time that he was writing, and it was a big deal then, unlike today, where nobody elevates wealth and success, and nobody thinks that money equates power and prominence and position. Not even an issue in the year 2015, right? Okay, so it is still an issue. So he's wanting people to understand that you don't identify yourself by your bank account. You don't identify yourself by your position, your power, your title, all of those different things. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position because that's a place of faith. That's a place of trust. That's a place where God has to kick in in ways that only God can. And the brother that's rich, the brother that has everything that the world would call important, ought to take pride in his low position Because all of that wealth is going to pass away, but what will last is a relationship with God. Now, there's been a huge distortion of this passage. In fact, a lot of people have said that in order to take pride in humble positions, we need to never have any money. We need to not take care of ourselves. We need to just trust God, and God will take care of everything that we need to do. So a number of Christians have said, I just live by faith, and that is all that matters. There is nothing biblical about that, not one bit. If you have people that are saying, I'm not going to work and take care of myself and provide for the needs of my family, I'm just going to trust God to do it, well, all you're doing is sitting back on your faith and doing nothing. God has given you certain skills, abilities, talents, strength, whatever you want to call it, to be able to provide for your family. You use those things to do that. And when you get to the end of your abilities, if God has to kick in supernaturally, He will. If God has to kick in miraculously, he will. But don't sit back expecting that God is miraculously going to care for you. That's a distortion of this passage. 
Tina and I went through a three-month period in our life. I've told you bits and pieces of that story, and in some settings, the whole of it, where I was unemployed. Our daughter was three weeks old when I became unemployed, and our circumstances changed dramatically. It would take three months before I would start working again, and we would draw a paycheck. During those three months, God took care of us in ways that He never had before, and He never has since. It was absolutely miraculous, unbelievable, wonderful to see what God did for us. But the moment I started drawing a paycheck again, that dried up. And God wasn't doing those things the way he had in the past. He shouldn't have been because God had provided for us through employment. God does that. Make sure that you don't distort the passage and think that it's a license to just sit back and do nothing because it isn't. God says when you're struggling, when you're going through some difficult times, you need to take pride in that because it's a place of faith. And the Lord will reveal himself to you in some pretty spectacular ways. You may lose your identity in the process, but God will take care of you. We live in a society, as did James, where that was upside down logic. People took pride only in what they were able to accomplish for themselves. And it got them in trouble over and over and over again, because they lost sight of who Jesus was. When we go through identity surrender, we find ourselves in a place where we are able to recognize over and over and over again what God has done for us. We give Him credit for it. We give Him the glory for it. And you know what God has done for you? He's taken you through a process. It's a beautiful one. The Apostle Paul would describe it this way in the book of Ephesians. Go from the book of James to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes these words. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, if you're really reading that critically, you'll see a three-step process that the Lord takes us through. Let me show it to you so it'll pop out at you. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Three-step process, beginning with what God does for us. Then it progresses to what God does in us. And the third step of the process is what God does through us. Now, the first step of that is what God does for us. It is easily called salvation. And we'll put this up on the big screen as well because I know it's hard, especially for people in the back to see this. What God does for us is salvation. Paul would say he brings that about by grace, not by works so that no one can boast. God saves us by grace. His grace sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. But here's what you have to understand. This work is done solely by God so that you will never have the opportunity to say, look at what I did. I got myself to heaven. It is impossible. It is impossible. It is impossible for you to work your way to heaven. Amen? I like that. That was a good resounding answer. Let's do it again just so we drive the whole thing home. It is impossible for you to work your way to heaven. Amen? Amen? It only happens by the grace of God, and that is God's work for us. Nobody can boast about that. 
Nobody can take credit for it. Nobody can steal that from the Lord. You know, in our current society, people want to believe that they have the power to do everything themselves. This simple work right here proves them wrong. That is upside-down logic. In Christ, you can't do it. Identity surrender helps us understand that. If you go to the book of Acts, you will read over and over and over again people's different accounts of how they come to Christ. My favorite is when an Ethiopian eunuch is on the side of the road reading from the scrolls of Isaiah, and Philip sees him there. He comes up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch says to him, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Philip explains to him who Jesus is from the scrolls of Isaiah. That man looks right at Philip and says, there's some water, why can't I be baptized? Philip baptizes him, and then the, the unbelievable thing happens. He just disappears. He baptizes him and he disappears. That man was introduced to Jesus and he was obedient all the way through to baptism. And that's the perfect picture of salvation. Exactly what it's supposed to look like. The Gospel of Luke would tell us that when that happens, angels rejoice in heaven. There's rejoicing in heaven because people have accepted the work that God does for us. But that will quickly lead us into what God does in us. Biblical word for that is sanctification. God is sanctifying us, which means he's working to make you holy. The best way that I have to describe that is an illustration that I've used before, but I really like it, so I'm going to share it with you again. Here you go. My dad is a wonderful craftsman. In fact, he's an incredible craftsman. Beautiful work that he can turn out, particularly with wood. Toss him a two-by-four and he'll, he'll build you something unbelievable from that one two-by-four. He's just really a great craftsman. I did not get any of his skills or abilities, none of them. I've wondered about it. Well, I'll just stop. When he gets a hold of a piece of wood, and, and I would travel around with him as a kid and watch him do this, he'd just get a block of wood, might be about yay big, so on. He would look at that piece of wood and he would see a duck in it. So he would buy it from wherever he found it, or he'd pick it up on the side of the road, and he would talk about that duck all the way home. I'd ask him, Dad, how in the world can you bring a duck out of that? And he said, it's simple. I just take away everything that's not duck. As soon as he looks at it, he sees the duck, and he carves away everything that's not duck. That's a great illustration. Do you know that God does the same thing with us through his son, Jesus Christ? He looks at you, he sees his child, and he carves away everything that is not his. Now you think about what happens with a block of wood when somebody's taking away everything that's not duck. That requires some sharp instruments, requires some brute force. But what comes out on the other side is a beautiful piece of work. Same thing is true in Christ. God takes from you everything that is not duck. He removes from you that which is not Christian sands it down, polishes it up, and you stand before him sanctified. It's a long process. In fact, it's a process that lasts the entire time that we live on this earth. Then we stand before God and we're there as a bunch of ducks. Everything else has been carved away. You want to see how important this is in the Bible? Go with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is going to sound a little goofy to you as we get started. Stay with me. Here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, 
temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now, that's a, a list of qualifications. Some people call it characteristics of those that would serve in the capacity of elder in the church. I like the word characteristic better because if it's qualifications, nobody's ever going to be qualified. But if it's characteristics, you can see that in the men that lead this church. But I want you to listen to what Paul says next, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the role of leadership in the church, the Bible would teach that that person's not to be a recent convert because of this process. A whole lot of sanctification is still taking place so that identity surrender can be what it is supposed to be. Well, once we have made our way through what God has done for us and into what God is doing in us, it leads us to the third step in the process from Ephesians chapter 2, God's work through us, which we can title service. This is what we do with these two steps or stages. How am I going to express things to other people that will demonstrate my love for Christ? The interesting thing about this is in order to understand it, you have to put some arrows in place. It starts here and takes us to here, and that takes us to here. That's the process of identity surrender so that now my life is defined by what I am doing for God rather than what I am doing for myself. And I'll show you scripturally what that has to look like. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25 this time, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You see, that's what this looks like. In identity surrender, this upside down logic of Christianity, we start taking care of other people. We start meeting their needs in the name of Christ. 
because that's what Jesus told us to do. We have a number of what I refer to as Matthew 25 ministries in this church, like our food pantry, the mission shop, the candle ministry, which is a financial assistance ministry. Those are Matthew 25 ministries that are all about just taking care of people, feeding the hungry, giving a drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, and even visiting people in prison. We have people in the church that do that as well. Those are Matthew 25 ministries. There are normal questions that come up about that. People will look at the food pantry and they'll say things along these lines. Well, the same people are coming back week after week after week and they're just robbing us instead of buying their own groceries or letting us buy their groceries for them. Or the same people are coming to the mission shop week after week after week and they leave with bags of clothes and and they're taking advantage of us and how can we let that happen? Or The candle ministry says we have people that are coming on a regular basis and, and they're applying for help and they're trying to get money from the church. We just can't let that happen. And my answer is always the same when somebody says to me, what do we do about the people that are coming and abusing us? This is my answer. Nothing. Nothing. Because that's between them and God. What we do to help other people is between us and God. And Matthew 25 says this is what it's supposed to look like. So church, this is what it looks like. And we do it. And if people are taking advantage of us, so be it. They'll deal with that with the Lord, not us. We're going to be obedient to what the Bible says. We're going to do what Scripture says. And if we get taken advantage of, we get taken advantage of. I can promise you this. I stay awake thinking about a lot of things at night, but that isn't one of them. Now, there are obvious stewardship things that we apply, and our ministries do that very well. But as far as other people that are are stealing from the church, well, that's between them and God. As much as this is between us and God, we're going to do what the Lord says. We're going to do what the Bible teaches. (laughs) Cliche little statement, and God will sort out the rest. And he will. That's his job, not ours. I love that about our church. You see, identity surrender helps us do that. We don't have to become so protective that we're not able to be generous. We don't have to become so protective that we can't do the things that the Lord's told us to do. Instead, we can say, we'll do what God's told us to do and the Lord will take care of it. That's the way it's supposed to be. So let me take you back to where we started with Joseph. Find myself still curious about why he was so quiet, why there's nothing recorded in Scripture that came out of his mouth. Maybe it is true that he was just a really quiet man that didn't have much to say, man, a few words. We have a lot of men in this congregation that would fit in that category. I'm not one of them, but we have a lot of men in this congregation, men of few words, but of great action. They don't have to say much about it. They just do it. That's what Joseph did. He didn't call a lot of attention to anything that he was doing. He just did it. God told him to do it. He did it. He was incredibly obedient. And maybe he was just joining a whole bunch of other people that had understood what it meant to surrender their identity. And rather than call attention to themselves, they wanted everybody to see Jesus for who he was. You know that Matthew, in his gospel, the very first one we read of the four gospels, Matthew wrote an important book of the Bible only mentions himself twice, and both times he would call himself a tax collector. Only two times. Even in his list of the apostles, Matthew wouldn't put himself first. He put himself eighth. He's the eighth one in his own list. Upside-down logic, identity surrender. To call himself a tax collector in his own book was to take pride in his low position 
That's all it was. Nobody looked kindly on tax collectors, unlike the world today where we all love the IRS. They didn't look kindly on tax collectors. Matthew equated himself that way. John, in his gospel, some people would tell you the most important gospel there is because it shows Jesus in different ways, would only refer to himself in one of two ways, as the other disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. He never mentioned his own name. Not one time did he call attention to himself. Luke wrote two different books, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and he never mentions himself by name. Paul, in all of the writings that he would put into the Bible, is very careful at how he refers to himself. He calls himself a fool. He calls himself the least of the apostles and the greatest of sinners. Following James chapter 1's pattern, he's laying all those things out rather than saying, hey, look at me, this is what I've accomplished. He has inverted what society says is important. He's turned it upside down, surrendered his identity, and said it is all about Christ. That's all that matters. Did you know that David never once, not one time, did he write a psalm about what happened with Goliath? Of all of the psalms that he wrote, all of the different songs that he penned, not one of them is about the battle with Goliath. It doesn't mention ever in the book of Psalms him picking up the stones and putting them in a sling and slaying the giant. But the 51st Psalm is directed to people that have struggled just like he did with sin. He writes all about his fall with Bathsheba. That's what he calls attention to, not his victory, but rather his defeat, because it's in the defeat that we find Christ. It's in the defeat that we discover our need for grace. That's why he writes the way he did. Maybe that's why Joseph was so quiet. He figured out identity, surrender. It's still hard for a lot of people. It's still hard for us to determine that it's, first of all, important, and secondly, even to know how to go about it. We go to a movie, or we turn on our TVs, or we open a magazine, and all we see is what the world says about identity. You open the Bible, and you see something totally different. Let me illustrate it for you as we close this up. I have three horses that live in my barn. Love my horses. You know that. It's always an interesting study twice a day to go over and feed them and watch what happens. There is an obvious pecking order among them. There's my old guy, Jigger. I love Jigger. He's my horse. He and I have ridden together hundreds of miles. Jigger is in charge of our barn, and the other two horses know it. Whatever he wants happens. When hay is dropped from the hay mow down into the corral, Jigger's going to be the first one to eat. Nobody's getting in his way, and nobody even tries anymore. Jigger is in charge, and he can move the other two around simply by nodding his head or pinning his ears, and they'll get out of his way. Then there's our mare, Lakota. She's a great horse. She really is. My kids ride her. Tina rides her. They love this horse. She would like to be in charge, but she has a problem. His name is Jigger. He won't allow her to be in charge. So she tries to move Jigger around, doesn't work. Jigger tells her what to do. There's actually a panel between their two feeders. We drop hay down into Jigger's, he eats first. Drop hay down into Coda's, she'll go over there, but she's still moving around because she's moving our third horse around to try to keep him away from the food. When she finally gets over and puts her head down in that hay and starts eating, if Jigger wants her to move, all he has to do is pin his ears from inside his feeder and Lakota's gone. There's a fence, a panel between them. He isn't fast, but she's still scared. So she gets out of there. And that leaves our 
third horse then, Pepper. That's the one that Lakota pushes around. I got him last summer. He's an Arabian. By nature, he's a proud horse. You put him under saddle and he's got his head up and his ears held high and sometimes his tail is embarrassingly high. That's what Arabians do. I never thought I'd have an Arabian. I never wanted an Arabian. They look a little bit funny at times. I was never really interested in Arabian, but he was cheap. So that's that's why we have him. And he's a great horse and he's taken Jigger's place and I really enjoy riding him. He's got a lot of heart and he'll drag my big carcass anywhere I ask him to. So it's a good deal. But he's the least of the three, and he knows it. All of that pride in him in the corral disappears. When the hay is dropped, he knows that he's number three, and there's no question about it. Jigger's already doing his thing. He doesn't even care about Pepper. Coda's trying to run Pepper around. Pepper's pretty smart, so he's figured out he's going to stand 15 feet away and wait for everybody to settle down before he even goes in to eat. So when Lakota gets settled down, Pepper just kind of slinks around the corner and comes in. But if she decides she wants his hay, she comes and gets it. Or if Jigger decides that he wants it, all he has to do is just turn his back end towards Pepper and Pepper's gone. You've never seen a horse levitate so fast. He's out of there because he's been beat up and picked on and found himself in the low position over and over and over again. I kind of like watching the dynamic of it. My wife's in trying to run the other two off and just let him eat. She's just scared for him. And I said, honey, he hadn't missed a meal. It's okay, but she's still scared for him. You know, we're just like the horses. We're always looking at the one above us. We're always concerned about how we get that position. Lakota wants Jigger's spot. Jigger has no worries. Pepper just wants Lakota's spot so he can eat not have to worry about being run around. We do the same thing. We look at the people just above us. We try to figure out how we can get there because that's what the world teaches. The Bible says something totally opposite. You start looking at the people below you. You pay attention to them. You get your focus changed and you'll be doing what Jesus has told you to do. In fact, you'll be doing exactly what Jesus patterned. This is Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how we do it. Just follow Jesus' example. He didn't worry about looking up at what he deserved. He was looking down, figuring out how to minister to you and to me and to everybody else around us. When we discover that type of identity surrender, listen to what James says happens. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's what we're after. That crown of life. This is how you get there. 
upside down, inverted logic that leads us to identity surrender. It's all about Jesus, never about us. Amen? Just you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, like we've said, this stuff is hard for us to grasp because the world that we live in it doesn't teach anything close to it. Seldom ever even brings up the idea. But Father, the New Testament teaches us this whole concept of surrender. I'm praying that you'll help us embrace it. Praying that you'll help us to see those in low positions that we might be able to help them acknowledge their high position. Father, change our perspective so that we can see all the things that just fade away and focus on that which lasts. And that, of course, is you. I want to pray specifically for the process that Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter 2. Father, for those that have not started in that process, would you let today be the day? For those that are maybe stuck at an uncomfortable spot, would you keep them there? until they surrender to it. Lord, for those that have figured out all three steps, would you let their faith be contagious to those around them? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.